0: If you would, please prepare with me for the ministry of God's Word by turning in your Bible. There are two texts listed in your bulletin, Nehemiah 3 and Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to turn to them in that order. And if you would, please stand together as you find those texts. We do so that we might separate the Word of God from the servant that sent to proclaim it. Scripture tells us that the grass outside withers, even those beautiful flowers will fade away, but the Word of the living God will endure forever. So it becomes the people of God to hear and heed it faithfully together. This is God's word from Nehemiah, chapter 3. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hanalel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hekaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Banna, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord." Joada, the son of Paseah, and Meshullam, the son of Bozadeah, repaired the gate of Yeshanah. They laid its beams and set up its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranethite, the men of Gibeon, and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Hahariah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to them, Hananiah, one of the perfum- perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephaiah the son of Hur, ruler of half of the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumaphah, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashbaniah repaired. Malchiah, the son of Harim and Hashub, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanun, the inhabitants of Zenoa, repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malchiah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth-Hakherim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of kol ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah of the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of ozbuk ruler of half of the district of Beth-Zur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired, Rahum, the son of Bani. Next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of the half district of Shelah, Repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Bavi, the son of Henadad, ruler of half of the district of Kelah. Next to him, Etzer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabi, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hikaz, repaired another section from the door. Of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib, after him the priests, the men of the surrounding area repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah the son of Maseiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benui the son of Henadad repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palal, the son of Utsai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Padiah the son of Pirash and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After him, Zadok, the son of Ammar, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shalamiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zaleph, repaired another section. After him, Ashulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malchiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner and between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired now please turn over to a much easier section to read ephesians chapter 4 Ephesians 4 beginning at 11 and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way, into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's Father, reading God's word. Let's pray. We would still ourselves, Lord, and catch our breaths for just a moment. We wait upon you. We believe that it is your Spirit who inspired all these difficult-to-pronounce words. We believe it is your Spirit who has preserved them in their integrity down to this very day. And we also hold out confidence that it is the Spirit's intention to bless the reading and especially the preaching of the Word of God, that sinners might be converted into saints, that saints might be built up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation, and that we might even be spurred, to build up one another in love. Bless us to that end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. As I mentioned this a little bit earlier, the theme of the service as a whole leads into the sermon. It's that of one another. And I think a few were honest with me, and we looked back together at the last couple of years, last two or three years. It's been a really strange time It's been a really hard time. It's been a very sobering time. And one of the things that people have realized in the last few years is how much we actually need one another. There are lots of ways to illustrate that. But one might be that in the last few years, when people were forced into isolation, they attempted to do life online, they attempted to be social online in what we refer to as social media, many people discovered that that actually does not work very well. That being embodied people. We are intended to live embodied lives with embodied relationships and that there's no substitute for the real thing, which is to say real people. We really need one another. Well, today in our text, we see a lovely illustration of that in Nehemiah chapter three, uh, where the people of God not only need one another, they work alongside one another for their own protection and ultimately the glory of God. We're going to look at Nehemiah 3 through the lens of the points that you have there in your outline. The first of which we're going to consider is the plan to rebuild the city of God. Now, in many ways, Nehemiah 3 is kind of like a barn-raising event. And I'm going to guess that most of us in this room have never been a part of a barn-raising, but you might know what I'm talking about. Uh, It's a cool idea. The Amish are probably the best at it. Uh, When a handful of people gather together for the purpose of building one structure. And so you have a number of individuals, you have a number of families, you have a number of different skill levels, who all set aside a manner of time to get together and to build something that they have in common. And it's a remarkable feat to watch. It's remarkable when the work of, is done. And that is uh, what you're seeing here in Nehemiah chapter 3. But barn raising requires not simply people, it requires a plan. Carpenters and contractors in the room, they know the importance not only of having a plan, but having a detailed and accurate plan. In a certain sense, you could spend all the energy in the world building, but if you don't build it according to the plan, the structure will not stand. Nehemiah's building plan in many ways begins in chapter 2, verse 17, when upon telling the people of their predicament, he tells them that it's also time for them to begin building. Nehemiah is the planner, if you want to use or torture the metaphor. He is the contractor uh, in this dynamic. And the response of the people is one of instant and willing obedience. And I want to point out now something to which I'll return at the end. Uh, Nehemiah does not guilt the people into doing the work. He does not badger the people into doing the work. It doesn't even come down so much as a command from on high. uh, But rather, in many ways, uh, he basically leads the people to a point of instant and willing obedience when he says in verse 18, Let us rise up and build. And so there in chapter 2, verse 18, they strengthened their hands for the good work, and in Nehemiah chapter 3, the work begins. We'll come back in a little bit to the people themselves. But right now, what I want to do is, is draw a little more attention to the plan itself and the way that it unfolds. In other words, how is the work to be done Nehemiah, as we have seen, proves to not only be a great motivator, he is also a careful planner. In many ways, like his predecessor, Ezra, before him, Nehemiah pays careful attention to the details, and those details prove to be remarkably important. The names of this chapter, at least for me, and you probably sense me struggling, are some of the harder to pronounce in all the Bible. In fact, it makes me wonder if people in heaven can hear, because if so, I probably just offended about a dozen. Sorry about that. I'm pretty sure they can 't, but notice how uh, not only do you have this long list of hard to pronounce people names but also some pretty cool names of places or gates Yeshanah, the valley gate, the fish gate, the dung gate. Imagine whoever had to work on that one lost one round of Rochambeau, the fountain gate, the water gate, the horse gate, the east gate, the muster gate, the sheep gate all of these gates have names. And those names actually prove to be a little bit helpful. They make an interesting point because the sheep gape, the one that I last mentioned, is mentioned in the first verse of the chapter and also the last. And what does this indicate? But in a certain sense, Nehemiah chapter 3 is something of a circle. In other words, it has a beginning point, it has an ending point, and that's exactly how the city walls are rebuilt. They start in one place, they follow the plan and the outline, and they come back around to exactly where they began. So they end where they begin, which is at the sheep gate. The city wall is built in something of a successive circle. It's not a patch job where you have this piece connected to that piece and that piece connected to that piece, but rather it's like one long piece of wall or something like a chain. One link at a time is built, closed, and then they move on to the next. So for something like a wall, this is the right way to build it. A map of the wall would show there's neither circle nor square. I don't to use the word oblong very often in the pulpit, but today I do, uh, because this wall would be oblong, neither circle or square, uh, but a little bit of something of a jagged figure if you were to draw it out on a map. But not only was the city wall uh, not a perfect circle, the ground upon which it was built was not flat. It's rather, in many ways, the opposite. It was hilly, it was rocky, it was up and down, uh, it was around. You get the point. Jerusalem was a city built on a hill, a city with ups and downs, literally and metaphorically. Not soft ground, but rocky. Solid once it is built, but if you've ever had to dig through rock, you know that that is pretty hard going. Sheep gate is also important for another reason. The sheep gate uh, is that gate through which sheep would literally be brought to the priests for sacrifice. It's really the proper place to begin and end, not simply the place, but the proper place, for this is where the sacrifice for the temple would be walked through. It explains also why the priests are there and it explains as well the nature of the work. This is holy work. In fact, you hear that language in our text, it is consecrated. We'll come back to that. But to be clear, they are not rebuilding the temple. What the people of God are rebuilding in Nehemiah chapter 3, are the walls of the city outside of the temple. So it raises a question. If they're not building the temple, and they're simply building the city walls, how important is this work? To say it uh, differently, does God care about the mundane things that the people of God are doing? Does He care about things like City walls. Does he care about the little details that go into their work? And the answer is, uh, of course he cares. He cares about the walls of the city for reasons we will return, but he cares in general about the work that we do and even the quality of the work that we do. In other words, everything that we do, according to the Bible, even in Nehemiah chapter 3, can be done for the glory of God, and everything that we do should be done for the glory of God. It's the greatest motivation for all that we do. Therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And that's what we see them doing in Nehemiah chapter 3. The priests see the beauty. They see the glory. They see the significance of what the people of God are doing. And so they consecrate the sheep gate. It's the only one about which that language is used. They consecrate the sheep gate, and they set its doors in verse 1. But again, that important question not simply for them, but even for you, does God actually care about the work that you do? I often hear people ask that question. Am I doing something pointless with my life? Does God care about the things that we do? He absolutely does, and this led to what we sometimes refer to as our Protestant work ethic. What do we mean by that? It means you don't have to be a priest or a pastor or a missionary to be important in the sight of God, and to glorify and enjoy God in your work. It's really a remarkable thing. You can actually do, listen to me, teenagers, schoolwork and glorify and enjoy God. The little things that you do may seem little to you, but they're actually meaningful in the sight of God, just as every little brick, every little stone, every little piece of the city wall was important to the sight, in the sight of God and ultimately important to the people of God. So you don't have to be a priest or a pastor or a missionary to glorify God in your work. But what you do need to be, this is what we see in our chapter, is faithful. Faithful to give God the glory for the work that we do. This is what we see the people of God doing in Nehemiah 3. And that takes us to our second point. Let's talk about this long list of names, the people who do the work. I know you're getting really excited about the thought of it, aren't you? Would you like me to try to repeat them all again? Purgatory would be shorter it's not real, so don't worry. In many ways, uh, this section is the meat of the text and the meat of the sermon, but it, but it does come with something of a valid point that I imagine you feel each time I read through these long lists of names. It's, it's the deep-searching theological question we are all prone to ask at such a time, and the question is this, who cares? Who cares about this long, hard chapter, all these long, hard-to-pronounce Hebrew names, why is this even in the Bible? Uh, Derek Thomas, uh, who has a commentary on Nehemiah, uh, argues, or says playfully, that this is the kind of detail that belongs in the appendix in the back of a book that no one's probably ever going to read. Who cares who did all the, all the work and the little, the little details? Well, the details are actually important, and we're going to look at them by zooming out first and then zooming in. The zoom out, in other words, if you take a few steps back and you see the big picture, the zoom out view shows us that virtually all Israel is represented here. All Israel may not be here, but all Israel from top to bottom is represented here in one fashion or another. That makes it immediately a beautiful portrait. Here you see the high and the low working together, the rich and the poor working together, the noble and the common working together. Who all is here? Uh, We're actually given a rather exhaustive list. Priests and merchants, city officials and security officials, Levites and temple servants, union or guild guild men, uh, women, families, goldsmiths, you could go on and on. It's kind of like saying they're all here. They're all represented in one fashion or another. People who live literally across the street from the city wall that is being rebuilt and people who come from cities and towns far, far away who had to travel to get there and be a part of the work. This is the whole work of the whole people of God, Holy, serving together alongside one another for the glory of God and the benefit of one another. It really is a beautiful scene, even if those names are hard to pronounce. And thankfully, I'm not going to go over every name, but I am going to go over a few, the ones that appropriately stand out. The list begins with a high priest named Eliashib and his brothers. It's important that that is mentioned because normally, normally, priests would be exempt from this kind of labor. It would be considered, in a certain sense, beneath them. They had to do holy work, but here you see the priests rolling up their sleeves, doing the work with the people of God. These priests are certainly not above it. They roll up their sleeves, and they get to work. And not only that, Elisha, the high priest, enlists his brothers to join the work as well. The phrase next to them is repeated throughout the chapter uh, uh, quite a number of times. And it paints also this wonderful picture. The people of God working side by side, side by side, side by side, side by side. They were sweating together, top to bottom. They were growing calluses together, the high and the low. They were eating pizza together. All right, that's not in the text but you can at least imagine they were eating something. Who goes to a workday expecting not to be fed? But beside the priest, standing next to them were the men of Jericho. And that also is very interesting, that the priest should be listed right beside the inhabitants of Jericho. If the priests were known for their holiness, when I say Jericho, you think the exact opposite. Jericho is not known for its holiness in contrast to the priests. This is like saying the outlaws and the royalty were side by side working together to build the city walls. Then throughout the chapter, you have an awful lot of nobodies who are mentioned. But let's talk for a moment about nobody. Let's have a great conversation about nobody. Who are the nobodies? People that history uh, may likely forget. And even as, even as I just read the chapter about 10 minutes ago, you've likely already forgotten names like Zakur, Hassanah, Malkaya, and many others. Names that, in a little while, quite likely not be mentioned in Sunday school. There's a challenge to mention the unmentioned. Names that will likely not make it into children's storybook Bibles. And why is that? It's not just because... Their names are hard to pronounce. Is because, uh, in a certain sense, Nehemiah chapter 3 is not a chapter of heroes. In fact, uh, no one in the chapter is exalted above anyone else. If anything, those in the chapter that you might imagine that are already exalted are actually humbled and put on equal footing with everyone else. There are no heroes in Nehemiah chapter 3. Everyone, the noble... The priest, everyone becomes in a certain sense common folk doing common work with a common goal for the people of God and the glory of God. Others are mentioned, goldsmiths and perfumers, temple servants and city officials. Let's highlight uh, two more groups of people. Uh, One of them is pretty interesting to mention In verse 12, we get an unusual scene, if you know your Bibles and you know uh, the Bible's culture pretty well. Because in verse 12, there's mention of a man named Shalom and his daughters. Now, this is interesting because we live in a world uh, of blurry distinctions. We live in a world that has blurred the distinctions between men and women in an awful lot of ways, nearly countless ways. In fact, you can't turn on the news or TV or pretty much anything without seeing the blurring of those distinctions, and the stress that comes with it. But not only have those distinctions been blurred, uh, in a certain sense, uh, when you think about it, those distinctions are blurred physically and occupationally. Whether you agree with it or not, or however you choose to think about it, in the biblical world, uh, men and women, uh, those distinctions were actually regarded as much more important. One of the ways that was embodied is that, ordinarily speaking, women would not be exposed to such hard labor like you see in Nehemiah chapter 3. To say it sort of bluntly, rebuilding the city walls would be man's work. It would be hard labor. Uh, It would be difficult, burdensome work to do. But here we see a beautiful portrait of this man Shalom and his daughters working together. Uh, This should make some of us that can remember uh, older black and white photos from World War II. And remember in World War II, women were not sent to battle. Uh, But there came a time of crisis when women became the ones not only doing much of the medical work, but even building the bombs, the bullets, the guns that were sent, the tanks. And you could have those photos of women building these things. And there's something impressive about women engaging the work of the war. That's what you see in verse 12 of Nehemiah chapter 3. Israel is all in high and low, men and women, Shalom and his daughters. Everyone is pitching in. It truly is a family affair. It's the whole church. Well, that's great. I just turned 13. those of you who are 13, that was justice. It's the whole church except for verse 5. And some of you are probably wondering if I had skipped over it or what we would do with it. But if you come back to verse 5, Uh, Verse 5 stands out in many ways like a sore thumb. For in verse 5, you read, And next to them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. This is the one blemish in the whole chapter. This is the one negative reference in this entire collage of faithful servants. The Tekoites were people in the land of Jerusalem, That were there before the exiles returned. In a certain sense, you might think of them like squatters. They were there before the exiles came back. And their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. The word stoop uh, is the same word uh, used of a person who's described in the Bible as being stiff necked. They were too proud, they were too stubborn. They were like an unbroken horse that refused to be turned. These men were wildly proud and unresponsive to the command, Let us rise up and build. The word for Lord is also an interesting word. In fact, in different Bibles, it's uh, sometimes given a capital L. Other times, it's actually given a lowercase l. It's because it's a generic word for Lord that can sometimes be used to refer to a person. In other words, uh, is the Lord here in view God himself? Or is it uh, someone who is deemed in charge of the project, i.e., like Nehemiah? In a certain sense, it doesn't matter, does it? Because this is God's work. Even though he sent a man named Nehemiah to execute the plan. Regardless who gave the order, this was God's work. But in a certain sense, now be with me here, it's an important point. There are always people who are too proud to roll up their sleeves. There are always people who are too proud to help or simply unwilling. James Montgomery Boyce has a fantastic way of describing this regarding the state of servanthood in the church. This is one of those ouch moments, so just be be prepared to be a little bit poked. Boyce says, Unfortunately, many churches have this completely turned around. It is said today, the churches, more than anything else, resemble a football game played in a large stadium. I love this. So The church is like a football game being played in a large stadium. There are 80,000 spectators in the stands who badly need some exercise. (laughs) And there are 22 men on the field who badly need some rest. I love that. It's great. The 80-20 rule. Nothing old, nothing new. Well, ultimately, it is nothing new. 80% of the work in nearly every church is done by, what, 20% of the people. Now, you're, you're inclined to say, well, not us, not here. Uh, but before you get too excited, uh, if you question this, ask our deacons and our women in action. We're the leaders of those things that are often trying to recruit volunteers. Ask them, before you form your own independent opinion, whether or not 80% of the people here are doing 20% of the work. Boyce was spot on. The church is often like that football stadium uh, where many people are watching. We call them armchair quarterbacks, right? They're not in the game, but they're awfully opinionated about those who are playing it. So be careful about that. But it raises another question. Again, how important is the work that the people of God here were doing, even those who were unwilling to do it? And that takes us to our third and final point. How, How important is it that we not only do this work, that we do this work together, well let's ask the question this way: whose work was it that the Tokoites would not stoop down to perform? Whose work is it that eighty percent of the people supposedly are not willing to engage? thinking again about the takoites was it was this Nehemiah's plan in chapter three, or is this god's plan, and what is the answer? Yes. Yes, it was Nehemiah's plan, but ultimately it was God's plan. What Nehemiah 3 paints a picture of, in many ways, is the people of God serving together as a volunteer organization, and that's exactly what the church is, a volunteer organization, where so much of the work that needs to be done comes not with a Bible verse attached to it that says, Thou shalt do A, B, or C. Rather, There are providential moments to discern in the life of the people of God where all of a sudden the work before us is something that people of God can see, and there are those that will stand into the gap to get it done. The church really is a volunteer organization in a lot of ways. But what was so important about the work that they were doing? Let's think about the importance of those city walls. What did they stand for? What did they represent? What did they imply? Well, number one, a broken down wall, as we saw in the last chapter, was a source of derision. It reflected the fact that the curse of God was upon the people of God. For Israel was that place where God had once dwelt in His temple, but that temple had been laid low, brought to ruins, and God Himself had abandoned And that began with the city walls themselves being broken down as Israel was overturned by its enemies and eventually captured. The fact that these walls are broken down reflects the fact that a curse is upon the people of God and their enemies know it. Israel experiences derision. But not only did the broken down walls symbolize the covenant curse and the derision upon Israel, a broken down wall also left them vulnerable. Proverbs say, a man without self-control is like a city, a city wall broken down, left exposed and vulnerable. A broken down wall left the people of God vulnerable to enemies that would come in literally at any point from any direction to prey upon them. The city walls gave them safety and security. Kids, do you love fences or do you hate them? But Have you ever thought about what life would be like without fences or even walls? Where do you know where that line is between safe and unsafe? Think about how many fences separate kids from streets where traffic goes rushing by. And outside of that fence, there is no safety. But inside the fence, you know it is safe to play and you can relax. At our home in Florida, uh, we would have a Sunday evening Bible study. It was full of of bodies, uh, young and old. We had a fenced-in yard in the back that overlooked a little pond, and little kids loved to go out there and play. And we also had alligators in the pond. And I can assure you that the moms especially were very thankful for the fence because the fence not only told the kids where to stop, it told the alligator where to stop. It is true that sometimes you would have to tell the kids to come back over from the fence. But you see the importance of it. Not only was the work that they were doing important, but when you think about it, uh, the people, in many ways, were even more important. In other words, say it like this. Israel was about a holy and important task. They were rebuilding the city walls that represented their security and represented, in some ways, uh, their standing and their relationship with God. But what happens if you have a wall with a hole in it? How useful is a chain That is broken at one link. A hole in the wall is a vulnerable wall. A hole in the wall is like a broken chain. And a broken chain is worth about as much as a wall with a hole in it. That is to say, nothing at all. The people of God needed not simply part of the wall to be rebuilt. They needed all of the wall to be rebuilt from sheep gate to sheep gate. And not only did they need all of the wall rebuilt, they needed one another. Who is the most important person in Nehemiah chapter 3? There's no way you could, you could answer that. Everyone was important, from the nobles to the servant, from the high priest to Shalom and his daughters. They were all needed to fortify the city. Every person was important. Every gate was important Every stone was important. It is interesting that the word for rebuild is actually to make strong, because that's what they were doing. They were strengthening. They were rebuilding. They were making strong the city walls. They were making strong their peace and safety. That's what the people of God were doing then, and in many ways, it's what the people of God continue to do now. They're building up alongside one another, and they're building up one another but it again makes us think about the unnamed characters. Commentaries note that it's almost conspicuous that the one person not mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 3 is Nehemiah. Arguably, the most important person in the project is the one whom Nehemiah, the author of this, chooses not to name. He is the man behind the scenes, who does not put himself on center stage, but rather, if you will, upholds and promotes the people of God. He is the mastermind coordinating and motivating them, but not drawing attention to himself, but ultimately to the people instead of himself. But is Nehemiah the only one behind the scenes? Is Nehemiah the only one motivating the people of God and coordinating the plan? Who is it who really lies behind the scenes and is at work rebuilding the city wall in and through the people of God? There's more going on to the story than simply Nehemiah. It is God who is at work in His people. It is God who is about the business of building up and restoring, making strong again, not simply the city of God, but ultimately the people of God. Which is God far more interested in? The stone walls? or the people that dwell inside them, the city, or the inhabitants of the city. It is not the stone walls or the city itself that God finds precious, that God is most interested in preserving and even rebuilding. It is ultimately His people, or that is to say, it is His church. God's great goal for the church is to build it up. God's great goal for the church is its salvation, its peace, and its safety. And God executes his goal by one who is also not named in this text. And it's not Nehemiah, it is Jesus. For God sent Nehemiah to rebuild the city of Jerusalem at that time. But that city, as we point out last week, will once again fall. These walls will be rebuilt, and these walls will be torn down. This temple will be rebuilt, And the temple again will become Ichabod, a point of departure from which God will leave. But Jesus will come. And Jesus will come in many ways, just like Nehemiah, be the unnamed hero of the text. Jesus will come. And in many ways, just like Nehemiah, will lay down his life, exalting others rather than himself. Jesus will come. And for the very same purpose, he will come not to be served, but to serve and he will indeed give his life a ransom for many, so that more than city walls, stone and brick, might be set in place to build up and protect the people of God. And now as Jesus come, Scripture reminds us over and over that he gives us a lasting city. We heard this in our call to worship. We heard it in verses last week. There is a lasting city of God that is not made with stone walls. And ultimately, that city is found in the church. We began the sermon thinking about the very theme of one anothering, and that's been the theme throughout the entire service today. But if you look at Nehemiah 3, again asking this question, who is the most important person? The answer is nobody. But if you say it again, who is the most important person? You might be tempted to say everybody. And both would be true. For there is no one hero in Nehemiah chapter 3, but everyone is important. But in many ways, isn't that exactly the case in the church? The only hero is God himself, right? No one person can or should take the credit for what's going on in the life of the people of God. Everyone is important, even those with really hard to pronounce names. But thankfully, not too many of us have those. But if the people of God needed one another in Nehemiah chapter 3, don't miss this question as we find our landing place here. How truly, how desperately, how significantly do we need one another? Have you learned the lesson of the past few years? The people of God learned how much they needed each other by way of exile. Exile. That's how they came to that conclusion that they needed one another and they desperately needed one another and we are now, beloved, on the other side of a form of exile, it would seem, as well. And we've learned something very valuable. We actually need one another. Everyone is important in the body of Christ. No one is to be exalted over another in the body of Christ. None of us should be too proud to roll up our sleeves and get calloused hands together All of us need all of us. There are some who I think uh, take what I'm saying very seriously and actually think the church is quite important. Things like membership in the church are quite important. Things like fellowship in the church are quite important. Things like serving one another in the church are really important. And there are those that don't, that are like the armchair quarterbacks, or the stadium watchers that Boyce describes that think things like church membership, eh, not a big deal. Serving other people, I've got better things to do. Belonging to one another, I'm not even sure what that really means. Nehemiah chapter 3 exposes something that I think gets at the heart of where we are as the people of God. We truly need one another. The body of Christ is a big family, where no one is exalted over another, but actually we learn to cherish one another. Our greatest purpose in life may be found in the most simple of things. For the people of Nehemiah, rebuilding the city wall was a great privilege, and even if they are forgotten by history, never mentioned in children's storybook Bibles, and their names never echoed in a Sunday school class, they got to participate in the rebuilding of the city walls. How much more, beloved, how much more important, beautiful, and valuable is the work that you do when you build up one another? When you come alongside one another, simply building up and loving the body of Christ that he loved so much, he gave up his life to build up her. Let's pray. Lord and our God, in many ways we recognize that the world in which we live is as fractured <clears throat> as the walls of Jerusalem in Nehemiah chapter 3. And in some ways, Lord, we recognize that the church is not always as strong and healthy as it needs to be. And there is a certain sense in which uh, there is an ongoing imperative that we need to rise up and build, just as Nehemiah said to the people, that there is a, a great joy to be found in growing calluses alongside the people of God that there is a a wonderful measure of spiritual maturity to be found even in exalting other people as more important than ourselves. And so we thank you, Lord, that Jesus did exactly this, that he found the church so lovely and beautiful that he came in the fullness of time to lay down his life on behalf of his bride, on behalf of his people, and he is the builder of the city. And we thank you, O Lord, that in a certain sense, it is not up to us to build the church, but it is to us to build up the church in love and through good works and deeds of service. And so we pray, Lord, that each and every one of us, young and old, rich and poor, male and female, would help us to find our place in the body of Christ, help us to recognize not only how much we need the ministry of other people to ourselves, to our own hearts and to our own lives, help us to recognize how much the people around this room need us to find and exercise our own gifts. So Lord, might it be the case that we are not an eighty-twenty 20 church and that those uh, who stand up and rise to the occasion when service opportunities are made known, uh, will not grow weary in doing good, because they see an able-bodied uh, sense of people around them who not only love and appreciate them, but desire to stand in the gap as well. Lord, we thank you for our church. We ask that more and more you would help us to esteem one another the way that you esteem us is beautiful in Christ, and that we would find great joy in serving one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.